Open your Bibles, if you would, to the second chapter of the book of Acts. Tonight we will study verses 1 to 13. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. Luke records, when the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to preach in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, what a joy it is to look back through your word and distant times and we see your great and mighty works and what a great and mighty work it was when the exalted Christ poured out your Holy Spirit upon the church. And so, Father, we pray that we would be instructed about the gift of Pentecost, but we pray as well that we would know intimately the reality of which we read, that we might be empowered to proclaim your great deeds throughout the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When most Christians look back on the first coming of Christ, they tend to think of his sin-atoning death, his glorious resurrection, and for good reason. We think of the the great significance of those events, but actually there's there's more to what Jesus did in his first coming. His work assigned to him by the Father was not complete until he ascended into heaven. We, We looked at the passage in Acts that speaks of his ascension, but then the final act of the Lord Jesus Christ before the gospel age in which we are now living, the, 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 the ultimate deed uh, completing his first coming was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God upon his gathered church. Uh, the book of Acts, as it pushes the gospel narrative forward from the earthly ministry of Jesus, now to the ministry of the apostles, reminds us of the significance of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Pentecost event was very important to the Lord Jesus. We think in what we call the farewell discourse at at the Last Supper, John 14 to 16, where Jesus so emphasized that they were actually going to be better off with him not there. That was inconceivable to the disciples, that they would actually be in a better redemptive place better spiritual place with Jesus not with them. How could that be? And he said in John 14, 6 to 7, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, 
even the spirit of truth. And so it's important for us to realize that when Jesus departed from this earth and went into heaven, he did not hand off his ministry to others. That's a common thought. That Jesus left, he put others in charge. No, he did not put the apostles in charge. He certainly did not put a succession of earthly popes in charge of his church. Rather, he took up his reign and at the right hand of the Father, and he began providing in a new way, in light of that ascension, that exaltation, that authority to which he has ascended. And Jesus sent the Spirit as his choice provision for the church to carry on his saving work in supernatural power. I I love the statement that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15 where he's talking about the resurrection and the certainty of our resurrection. And speaking of Christ now in heaven, he says, for he must reign. My friends, Jesus has not handed off his gospel ministry. He's not handed off his leadership or care to the disciples. He is reigning over all things on high for the church and he has sent his Holy Spirit. We think of Jesus' last instruction before he ascended. He ordered them, this is Acts 1, 4 to 5, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, Acts 1 to 4. Well, this is the signature gift of the glorified Christ. As John, as he pointed out, John the Baptist foretold, I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This reminds us that Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit to the church, is a once-for-all, unrepeatable event. It is the climax of the first coming of the Son of God, the Messiah of his people. Now, the Bible presents, then, the coming of the Spirit of God as God's greatest gift to his people, that they might have the enjoyment of salvation life. They might be empowered for their witness to the world. Now, that might seem like a controversial statement. We might think, no, no, the, the Son is the choicest gift. No greater gift. God so loved the world that he gave his Son. But we would not want to deny the, 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 the value of the gift of the Son. But the Son was given in order that through his saving work, the life of the Holy Spirit might come to the people. Essential and central is, as all the other saving work of Christ in his first coming, they were directed to that final end, which was in that first coming, the gift of the Holy Spirit. How often we think of Jesus' parable on prayer in Luke chapter 11. And he compares God the Father to an earthly father and how if children ask their earthly father for a gift, the the father uh, would not give them something wrong. If they asked for bread, he wouldn't give them a stone. If they asked for an egg, they wouldn't give them an eel. And then he concludes the parable, particularly in Luke's version. In Matthew's version, he says, if you being evil give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to his children? But I think it's very significant. In fact, even Luke's gospel has a particular emphasis on the Holy Spirit. For in that version, we we have to trust that Jesus told the parable more than one time. That's probably likely. And in the version that Luke chooses to record, he says, How much more, you being evil, give, give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? 
to those who ask them. And so as we study the Pentecost event, it is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is itself one of the great redemptive works of God recorded in Scripture, after which the church and even the world would never be the same, but would have forever been changed. Well, we're going to do three things as we look at the uh, passage describing the Pentecost event tonight. First, we're going to consider the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, we will need to look at the three phenomena that are associated with the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And then we'll conclude with some reflections on what, what are the significance of these things that we have read. Well, first, let's consider the long-awaited, long-promised gift of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the divine trinity, we always should resist the impulse to speak impersonally about the Holy Spirit. It is, he is not an it. And so we, if we talk about, oh, the Holy Spirit, it, we're, we're missing something. He is a person. He has all the attributes of personality. You think in, in uh, Acts, or Ephesians 4.30 where Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. A, a, a force, like in the Star Wars movies, that cannot be grieved. No, it's a person. He is a person who can be grieved, and he exercises his will. He is a mighty person. And, and this comes off in the way this passage begins. Luke writes that when the day of Pentecost arrived, and then he tells about the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ's church. Now, the thing that we don't want to miss in that brief statement that the day of Pentecost had arrived is the notion of the time having been fulfilled. In fact, the, the, the Greek text has the same language that's used elsewhere in, in, the, in the New Testament about the times were fulfilled and therefore Jesus came. The same thing can be said about the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost had come to fruition. And so the Holy Spirit descended upon the church, an appointed time for the coming of the Spirit, no less than there was an appointed time for the incarnation of Christ. And just as the Feast of Passover signified and typified and anticipated its fulfillment in the atoning death of Jesus. We think of Passover. What was the key event of the ancient Passover ritual? It was the slaying of the sacrificial lamb, the daubing of the blood of the, of the lamb that was slain so that the angel of death would pass over their house. And so Jesus offered his life, that great atoning death he offered came at Passover and it fit the Passover symbolism. The same is true of the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost, also called the Feast of Weeks, was one of the three main feasts in the Old Testament feast schedule. It actually is 50 days after the day when the lambs were slain on Passover. And so, and there's a, there's a, there's a symbolic logic there. You have the, the 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 sacrifice of the Lamb of God being made, and then there's seven sevens, seven being the number of biblical fulfillment, and then there's an extra day. In fact, in many of the Old Testament feasts, there was an eighth day, and that eighth day, our call to worship tonight was the reading from John 7, when in the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood in a prominent place, and he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, for rivers of water will flow out of his life. That was on the eighth day, the great, the special Sabbath at the end of the feast, that eighth day was an anticipation of the new creation. 
of the new age that would come when the Spirit was given. And it's their seven sevens and then the new day. On the 50th day is the day where the harvest is celebrated. The Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost, was the celebration of the wheat harvest coming in. And if you look in the Old Testament descriptions, there's the waving of the first fruits before him. And so the idea is, and here's, what, here's God's design. This is happening by God's plan, his redemptive schedule and calendar to proclaim his gospel. The Spirit comes at Pentecost and the age of the harvest begins. Christ has accomplished his work. He has taken up his seat of authority. You think what he said in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is the coming of the Spirit at that harvest festival, Pentecost, that initiates the, the ingathering of the, of the harvest of the victorious Christ as he reigns in heaven. Now Luke makes a special note here that the Spirit came suddenly. Now again, that, that word highlights his personal initiative. Not to mention Christ's ruling agency in sending the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse, verse 3 says that the, the disciples were sitting, in, actually into verse 2, it came to the empty house where the disciples were fitted, sitting. And I think we have this idea that the disciples must have been in especially fervent prayer that day. Because they were really on their game, as it were. And because they were praying with particular fervor and they got it just right, therefore, as the result of their labors, that they, they, and we speak this way, they prayed down the Spirit. That's not what's happening here. It's the sovereign Spirit. I, actually, as, they, as he says, they were sitting. They might have been having conversation around, around, around a meal. They might have just been reading the news, as it were. The, the emphasis is not on what they were doing. The Pentecost gift does not come because they had activated it by their spiritual machinations. No, at the time appointed, the harvest begins and the Holy Spirit, he comes. He comes, not called down, but rather on the timetable of the Trinity. He appears so that his work would be made known. And Luke tells us that when this great event took place, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit is the pouring out of God's presence in the lives of his people as the gift of his love. Uh, Bruce Milne, I think, is helpful when he says he is not so much a general spiritual power or force. No, he is a personal indwelling companion for the people of God. And it is an act of love on the part of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is a gift of empowerment and provision. Keith Warrington says this, the Spirit wants to do them good before he facilitates their doing good to others. Oh, he comes to facilitate their ministry. But before that, it's just an act of love and goodness of the Father. He blesses them with his presence before they bless God with their praise. Now, Pentecost, of course, is this once-for-all act 
by which the Spirit of God comes upon the church. There's a tendency, I think I mentioned this in a previous sermon, for uh, the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the many descriptions that's used. Actually, that, that terminology is not used in this description, but Jesus had used it. I, I think in popular evangelical parlance, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is primarily thought of something that happens in my own experience. It happened in your experience at a certain time. It happened in another person's. And, and I suppose the best form of that sees the baptism of the Holy Spirit corresponding to the conversion of a believer. The, the worst version of that is some higher life doctrine where you get saved and then sometime later, usually if you merit it, then you have a second blessing of the Holy Spirit and then you're specially powered. Well, the second of those is wrong on several levels, but the first of them is also wrong. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not an event that takes place in your personal experience or mine. It is the once-for-all event of Pentecost. It is the pouring out. It's the, the, the final act of Christ having died for our sins, risen from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father at the day when the harvest begins, he pours out the Spirit. The Spirit, he comes to his church. Notice that this is necessary then for the church. From this time forward, Spirit fulfillment, that the power of God dwelling as a companion within the hearts of his people, is integral to the very definition of a Christian. Notice he points out that all were filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 4. They all were filled with the Holy Spirit. An essential change has come into the lives of Christ's people as God fills them with his holy presence. And Jesus had told them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. To be a Christian is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit henceforth, empowered for worship, for holiness, and for the witness of Christ's gospel. Well, let's consider the phenomenon that Luke describes of the Pentecost event. There's three things that happen when the Spirit appeared and descended on the church. And the first, in verse 2, involved them hearing a mighty wind from on high. First, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, it's not immediately obvious in our English Bibles that the word for spirit and the word for wind are the same. It's actually true both in Hebrew and in the Greek language. In Hebrew, the word is ruach. In fact, even the, the word sounds like wind going forth. To say it, you have to breathe out. And the same is true of the Greek word, pneuma. You're breathing out. And so the word for the Greek word and the Hebrew word for spirit, the same word is the word for wind. And so this is a symbol that they hear. That's the first thing they get. They hear this mighty rushing wind from on high and and that sound. They don't feel the wind. They hear it. It fills the house where they are coming. Now the idea is that of power. They they anticipate power that is coming upon them from heaven. And if we know our Bibles, our minds should drift back as the, the wind of God blows upon the gathered church, Christ having taken up his throne. Our minds should go all the way back in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 1. And all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 to verse 2. For the Spirit of God was hovering 
over the waters. You know, the, the, the creation was an act of the entire trinity. We think of Father as the representative member of the Godhead. He, in the beginning, God was. But then the Word, John says this in John 1, the, in the beginning the Word was with God and was God. Nothing was made apart from him. And there was the Holy Spirit, that energizer, that empower, his wind blowing upon the primeval waters of the original creation. And so here we have the idea as they hear this wind coming, it is the empowering person of the new creation that is the church and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are to think something radically new is beginning. It is the new creation in Christ. We think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, actually the way he puts it in the Greek is, not that he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. There was the original creation. It was corrupted by the fall, but God will not be a loser to the works of the, of the devil. There is a new creation that, that, that redeems all that would have been lost. And the breath of the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and there is new life. There is a new age. James Boyce writes, it is the coming of the creative power of God to inaugurate a new era in which men and women will be brought to spiritual life. Uh, you think of Ezekiel 37, one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament, where poor Ezekiel, I really want to preach Ezekiel, but finishing up Jeremiah, I probably shouldn't launch into Ezekiel right about this moment. But there's so many great scenes, and one of the greatest is in chapter 37. In chapter 36, you know, you have the great prophecy of the new heart. I will, I will pour out my spirit upon your all flesh. I will take away your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. And then there's this vignette in chapter 37 where poor Ezekiel, having had a rough ministry, he finally, he's graduated prophetic seminary and he gets his first congregation, the first Presbyterian church of the Valley of Dry Bones. And it's just scattered bones and, and you have this great dialogue. What are you going to do, son of man? And Ezekiel's a veteran by now. He says... Lord, you know, just cut to the chase. And the Lord says, prophesy, son of man. And he begins preaching. And nothing happens when the word is preaching. But then we're told there's a wind that blows over these scattered bones. And when the spirit comes and blesses the proclaimed word, then there is life. There's movement. Those bones start growing sinew and flesh. And they ultimately stand up an army in praise and service to the Lord. We're to think of that as they hear that wind coming down from out of heaven to empower the saving ministry of the gospel. And Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. By the way, that verse is another statement of the personality, the personhood of the Spirit. You don't control the wind. The wind blows where it will. The Spirit brings life. It is the coming of the new creation with Christ reigning on high. The Spirit comes as he did in the creation of all things. Now, secondly, we're told in verse 3 that divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, fire is another symbol that it's not difficult to understand the meaning of. You think of when Moses was out and taking Jethro's flocks and he heard a voice calling to him, Moses, and he went and there was the burning bush. 
And the fire was the symbol of the majestic presence of the living God. In fact, the historic emblem of the Reformed churches, emphasizing the the self-existing, self-sustaining sovereignty of the the holy God, the the, the emblem of the Reformed churches has been ever since the burning bush. Uh, The fire did not come from the bush, nor did it consume the bush. It was the majestic being of God in his presence And so is this fire that comes upon the church. We think of the glory cloud in the Exodus uh, and the fire that, and on Mount Sinai, the fire that was the awesome presence of the living God. We think of Genesis 15 when God made that covenant with Abraham and and he passed through the severed pieces certifying in his own covenant pledge the promises of our salvation he'd given to the patriarch Abraham and it was like a fiery furnace. It was a burning fire that passed through them. God's glorious presence comes upon in, his, in, the, in the, the majesty of his glory and holiness comes in the midst of the people. This was the covenant aim. So long uh, determined by God, I will be their God. They will be my people. And Christ reigning on high, having reconciled sinners to the Father, The tongues of fire fall upon them. It's very interesting. Uh, The the fire comes upon the church, but it divides. And they saw, they didn't feel it again. They saw little tongues of flame. And so it comes upon the church, but everyone in the church experiences it on an individual basis. The manifestation of God in his majestic glory. He has come to dwell amidst his people. We should note further, however, that fire is also a symbol of divine judgment. And there's not the slightest doubt that that's partly significantly involved in these flames that come down, fire being a symbol of the wrath of a vengeful and holy God in judgment upon sin. And you say, why then, if their sins are forgiven, why, if they're redeemed by the blood of Christ, are emblems of judgment coming upon them because it does them no harm? They are subject to judgment like all flesh. But the, 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 the fire has been taken to the cross. The wrath has been turned aside from them. And there's an emblem upon them that these people are those on, on whom the judgment will do no harm. John, Jesus endured the baptism. Why Jesus, in part, spoke of baptism. You think of when he says, the baptism that I must endure, speaking of the cross. Well, the judgment will hold, in this baptism of the Holy Spirit, is a symbol that the judgment will hold no burning fire for his people. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, that part of the symbolism of the tongues of fire which the disciples saw on the day of Pentecost Hence that this baptism is of gracious rather than destructive power because the judgment which Christ has vicariously borne on the cross. And so as the Spirit descends upon the people and there's a new creation and the power coming on high, that heavenly wind is blowing upon the church and the flames of fire come down. Here alone is the community that has passed out from the judgment The ordeal of God's fiery wrath has already been endured for them by their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in this respect that we must be one with the church 
in order to be saved. We are not saved by being in the church. You don't join the church, have your name on a roster, and therefore you go to heaven forever. But you are saved into this church on which tongues as of fire, he says. Notice it's, it's a symbol of fire, a, 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 a manifestation that upon this people in all the world, there is no heat, there is no destruction in the judgment that is to come. Now, the third phenomenon of Pentecost is undoubtedly the one that is most well-known. And this is the giving of tongues. Look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this is a miracle. In fact, most of the rest of the chapter is going to deal with the loosening of their tongues to proclaim in languages which previously they had never known. Some of you have, uh, some of you are very gifted in languages. Some people just pick them up. For most of us, it's, it's laborious labor. I remember driving down the, the highway uh, during my Greek and Hebrew classes with my little vocab cards, cramming the words into my brain. But no, that's not what happens here. It's, an empower, it's a supernatural empowerment in this event. By the way, you don't see it happening on an ongoing basis. In this event, they are given utterance to speak in other languages. Uh, we're, we're given some details here. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every other nation under heaven. And so it's, it's one of the great feast days. There's great crowds. People, Jews from around the diaspora have come to Jerusalem, and they're there representing the world. By the way, you have both the Jews and the Gentiles. It's often been pointed out that everyone in the room and around the room was a Jew. And yet they were the Jews as they represented the gospel nations. For, for They were designed to be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations, and they're gathered there. And at the sound, they hear this, and the multitude comes together, verse 6, and they're bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who were speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Now, I think we need to be clear that the miracle of Pentecost was not one of hearing, but one of speaking. We're told that they were given this ability. They began to speak in other tongues and the people who were gathered there. In fact, that's why they were assembled, was that they would hear this manifestation of the coming of the Holy Spirit, that power for witness that Jesus had foretold that the gospel message would go out into the entirety of the world. Bruce Milne writes, the outpoured Holy Spirit will translate the tongues of fire into the living, supernaturally moving tongues of these human witnesses to the saving acts of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we see, I've mentioned already that the Spirit is first and foremost a gift. It is God's gift of communion with himself. And Jesus has come to reconcile us to the Father. God gives us the loving gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit to be our companion, God with us. And we have communion with him. But when we speak of the agency, the purpose, the most important thing we will see is to empower them to bear testimony to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have an interesting list here of the various tongues, the various peoples who are given it. It's not an exhaustive list of 
of all nations to which the gospel would go. It's a representative list. And Luke seems to be working roughly from the east to the west. You start off with the nations of Mesopotamia, the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia. You start there. Then you start coming into Asia Minor and and, and the Middle East, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. they're, they're, They're in groupings. It's going to move to North Africa, to some of the other lands. It's going to move towards Rome in the Mediterranean. And that's what we see here. It is the, the anticipation of the fulfillment of the promise that Christ's gospel and his praise would be extended to every nation, every tribe, every tongue. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that that witness might be given. Well, many people want to know or make connections between the, the tongues that are spoken this one time, this one, by the way, never, when, when Peter, it is significant, by the way, the next thing that happens is that Peter goes out and preaches. That tells the significance uh, uh, to all these people. And he preaches in Aramaic. He doesn't preach and he doesn't display. There's not an ongoing display. The point is not that the gospel works if you're able to speak in tongues. No, it's a symbolic demonstration of that purpose for which the gospel will be given, that the gospel would go forth to every tongue, every tribe. And immediately, starting in verse 14, the apostle Peter begins preaching the gospel. And so what's the connection here to 1 Corinthians 14, where the apostle Paul talks about In fact, it's only in that one church that we know of, the Corinthian church, only in that book where we have the the gift of speaking in tongues. And it's not entirely certain to what extent that we can connect the two. Some people will argue it's a completely different event. And often the argument's made that when Paul's speaking about later on the, the speaking of tongues, which they were certainly doing in Corinth, that they were using an angelic language. That, that probably is not true because he speaks there of them using the different languages of the world. Uh, it's a very interesting thing that that phenomenon is found in one of the earliest letters of the Apostle Paul, only in that local situation of the Corinthian church. It's very hard for us to know what to make of it, except for Paul's own teaching there, that in that case it was given, the gift of tongues was given, and and they were speaking in languages they did not know. I think the right way to read 1 Corinthians 14 is they were normal languages they did not know. They needed to be interpreted. Paul's actually writing to say, let's not too much of that because it's better to prophesy in a language where people understand you than in a language where they don't, and it, it needs an interpretation. But the most important statement is made in verses 21 and 22 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, in fact, this, in fact, I suspect that this is the reason why, in a limited way, during those apostolic times, this church was given this gift. I do not believe it's an enduring gift, any more than the gift of healing. It's one of the apostolic matrices of gifts because it was a sign of judgment to the unbelieving peoples and especially to the unbelieving Jews. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 21 to 22. In the law it is written... By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. Even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And Paul says, thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Now that's later in the church age where Paul says it's actually a rebuke that the Jewish people having rejected Christ from the gospel, well then they will hear 
I remember Jesus saying that he'll wipe off the dust of his feet, take it elsewhere. They will hear the gospel in tongues they do not know. That's a later event, and yet that's part of it here too. The languages of the world that the Gentiles receive the gospel after it has been rejected by God's ancient covenant people, even though these are all Jews who are being brought into the new creation. Well, let's consider thirdly the significance of what we read here. We see the phenomenon, we see the coming of the Holy Spirit, the sovereign spirit on God's timetable to make the point and to do the work he desires. He comes, he fills all the church. And he does so with the wind, the power of the new creation, with the fire manifesting God's holy and majestic presence and the judgment that they will not experience. And there's the empowerment of that witness to the ends of the earth. What are some of the implications we can draw from the Pentecost gift? Well, the first is this. There was on this day the beginning of the new community of the people of God in the Holy Spirit. Here we see the qualitative difference that is and is designed to be and must be true of the Christian church. It is the community, it is the church of the spirit of the living God sent from Christ from on high. There is on this body, beginning then and extending now throughout history, a qualitative difference to the church marked by the presence and power of the Spirit of God. One of the worst things that can ever be the case, and sadly, it appears to be the case in many times, when the church is just another club like the rest of the world, same attitude, same outlook, same thing going on. This, this can, it's, it's like when James talks about ill speech. Brothers, this should not be. Because the church is a, is a, is a man, is, we're a local gathering of that body, that community that, that Christ created, the one new man in himself, Jew and Gentile and Cappadocian and Pontus and Mesopotamian and North African, all indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is to be a holy people. Not to be one motivated by the motivations of sin. It's to be a people of, of love. Every Christian you meet is one who with you is indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. All purchased by the blood of Jesus. That's why the Apostle John says that one of the essential marks of, of even being converted is a love for the saints. The church is the new creation, the new community of spiritual power. Power for what? Not for self-aggrandizing manifestations not for fundraising schemes no power for godliness power for life power for the worship of god in spirit and in truth and for the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth i love how paul put it in second corinthians three eighteen. here's what he has to say about the new community created by christ at pentecost in the coming of the holy spirit he says we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord. Now, by Lord, he means the exalted Jesus Christ, who is the Spirit. He's not saying that at an ontological level there's a breakdown between the second and third person. No, he's saying on an economic level, in the shared work they do, the work of the Spirit is the work of Christ. Christ's work is seen in the power and the work of the Holy Spirit as we are being conformed into the image of the holiness of God in Jesus Christ. 
And it's often reflected upon, and rightly so, that what we see as the Spirit falls upon the church and their tongues are loosened so that they can speak in the the tongues of many different kinds of people is a reversal of the curse of God that came in the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. I think we don't give proper significance to the historic implications of Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel is a vitally important part of the Christian worldview that man in his pride sought to find his own way to divine glory and God came down and he confused their languages so that there's division. It's very interesting that right there with the Tower of Babel, chapter 10, chapter 4, is the Table of Nations. And that's where you get the divided world. That's where strife and, 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 and nationalism and, and tribal hatred comes from. The judgment of God upon an idolatrous people who sought to make a name for themselves in rebellion to God. He confused their languages. But you see what the church is? It is the undoing. People come out of the world. That's the world we live in. A tribalistic world in, many, in, in so many dimensions. Where I'm in, you're out. Uh, uh, hatred and strife. And the church is a different community. We come in and, and it's not about what nation you're from. It's not about your social class. It's not about your race. Th- these ways of thinking are an affront to the Holy Spirit. Christ is all and is in all. The Holy Spirit has come. There's a new creation in the Pentecost gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his people gain new identities and they are one. I had an experience of this when I was in the army. I had many experiences like this because we'd be off duty when I was a young officer and we'd be in some social event. And usually they were, you'd be in a large grouping and there'd be the normal, you know, the normal divisions. There's the, the, the white guys in that corner, there's the black guys in that corner, there's the preppy guys in that corner, and then there's the soldiers in another corner, and there are all kinds. And we had a shared experience and a bonding in, that, in, our, in our shared mission and the ethos that we'd been in, indoctrinated into and the way of acting and thinking. We felt more comfortable with a fellow soldier of any race, of any class, of any nationality than we did with our old social groups. Well, in an entirely new way, that's to be true of the Christian church. That we're no longer marked by the divisions of the world. We speak a common language. Maybe not the same earthly language, but we speak the word of God. I was, when I, we go to Peru, often their worship songs in Peru are mainly psalms and then scripture songs. And my Spanish, despite four semesters in high school and four semesters in college, is effectively unfunctional. Buenos dias, buenas tardes, buenas noches. I got those down. After that, I'm in trouble. But I love it when they're singing in Spanish the scripture songs because I can figure out where they are. And it's not my particular tongue, but it's my language. And I'm able, maybe in the second verse, to kind of know what I'm singing about. And and why? Because it's the Word of God. That's our language. It's what's written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Here alone or where where God's solution is found, the pouring out of the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of unity. This is the new community that the church is designed to be. At Babel, John Stott says, human languages were confused and the nations were scattered. But here at Pentecost, the language bearer was supernaturally overcome briefly as a sign that the nations were to be gathered together in Christ. 
Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. That's the language. That's what's said in Revelation 7, where we have that vision of the glorified church on the hill, dressed in white with palm branches in their hands. It will be all that was scattered at Babel, all regathered in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first implication. It tells us so much of what we are and what we are to be and what we are enabled to be because the Spirit has come to the church at Pentecost. Secondly, I mentioned it already, clearly this is a sign that the missionary harvest has begun. You will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus said, and the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth. And so the entire age of the world from Pentecost to the second coming of Jesus Christ is distinctively the age of the Spirit for the spread of the gospel throughout the world. In Luke's version of the Great Commission, Luke 24, 47 and 48, Jesus points out to the disciples that there's three things that have to be done for the kingdom of God to come. And he notes that two of them have already happened. The Son of God must die for our sins and he must rise from the dead. But the third must happen is the repentance and forgiveness of sin must be proclaimed in his name beginning at Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And it is for that purpose that the age of the world in which we have spent our entire life exists. I like to point out as well that of the three things Jesus mentions, two of them he performs for us unilaterally. You and I did not help with the cross. You and I were not there. We did not empower. We did not participate in the resurrection. But with the spread of the gospel, he places it in the hands of the church. And he pours out the spirit that loosens our tongues as it were. And there's a lot of things that our lives are about. You have your vocation. I have my vocation. We've got all kinds of local things. We together and each one of us have the great calling of the missionary expansion of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, a Christian church is therefore a lighthouse. It is a missionary outpost of the Lord Jesus Christ. You realize that that is why we are here at the corner of Rivenrat in this bustling, growing city. Here we are. We should feel a great burden and joy and sense of mission that the gospel is to be proclaimed from this place, through our ministries, out into the world, to the ends of the earth. The great work, the reason why this age of the world even exists was symbolized in the old Pentecost festival. The harvest has begun. Here are the first fruits. We, we, we respond with thanks to God. And James Boyce points out, therefore, that when the Holy Spirit comes in power, the, the real sign of that is not that we have a particularly intense emotional experience. That's what people think. I'll know that the Spirit, I have the Spirit, or the, better, that the Spirit has come into my life. I'll know that when I'll feel something, maybe a tingling. I'll, have, I'll, I'll weep, and maybe you will, maybe you won't. I'll have an intense experience. But Boyce points out, no, what we will really see is a widespread speaking about Jesus. Everyone will hear as the gospel spreads through the testimony of those who are obeying the Great Commission. There is a sign. Of a, of a Holy Spirit indwelt church, the proclaiming of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ near and far. You will be my witnesses. The gospel goes forth. This is the purpose of the age of the Spirit. And this is the calling of the church. There's a lot of talk today about what is the mission of the church. 
And that is not a matter for debate because Jesus gave the mission for the church to the church in the great commission of the church. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. For surely I am with you, even to the end of the age. Well, thirdly, we see that the coming of the Holy Spirit is intended to be the reign of praise to the Lord. Look at verse 11. Here's where I'm going with this. We hear them telling. Here's what they said. They heard the, the disciples speaking in their own language. And here's their report. Here's what they heard. We heard them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That's what worship is. Worship. We show why God is worthy in his person and in his works. And our worship is a celebration of the great deeds of God centered on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose final act until he returns was the outpouring of his spirit upon the church. In fact, that's what evangelism is. It's not bad to tell people what your experience has been. I'm not opposed to saying, here's my personal testimony. It's such, I, here's what I was going through. Here's what my life was like. And, and the gospel came to me. I believed and my life's changed. That, that's fine so far as it goes. But our witness to the world is of God's, the mighty deeds of God. One of which is the coming of Pentecost. Centered on the gift of his son, the birth, the life, the sin-atoning death, the glorious resurrection of Christ, his ascension to the right hand of God, and his outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that is our witness, and that is the praise that we live to God, give to God. I, I love how it ends, and all were amazed, perplexed, saying to another, what does this mean? Well, this is just the beginning of this phenomenon in the book of Acts, that they're going to shake up the world where they, that they are in because of their witness, but simply because of their praise. It's a foretaste of what will happen in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas are beaten for preaching the gospel and they're locked up and they're in this Philippian Roman prison and they're singing praise to God and praying and an earthquake strikes. Pentecost shook up Jerusalem. The people who were there were amazed and perplexed and the worship of the church is not to be like the worship of the world. It's to be God-centered, proclaiming his praise, his mighty deeds as we proclaim the good news of what he has done and the world is to take notice. Now you may say, well, not all of them were positive. This is going to really lead into the passage that comes, verse 13. Others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Well, yes, those are the two responses to the spirit witness that began at Pentecost. There were those who lifted their ears and said, what was that? Tell me what it, Peter's going to bring 3,000 people in that very day as he preaches the gospel. They were amazed and they wanted to know. And then there were others who heard and they, they mocked it. <laughs> Actually, when they said they are filled with new wine, Peter's going to discuss it, but they were onto something. They were onto the wrong thing, but they were under an influence to be sure, just not the one they thought. There will always be the scoffers until Jesus comes and then the mocking will end. Well, let me conclude by asking the question that you may have thought of, and that's this. How did the Holy Spirit's coming at Pentecost, how is it different than what we have in the Old Testament? Did they not have 
the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? If the Spirit comes at Pentecost, how were they able to believe without the Holy Spirit if the Spirit came at Pentecost? And the short answer is that the Spirit was present. You think of David in Psalm 51, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. The difference is primarily in degree rather than kind. All the saving operations of God in the Old Testament were, were the work of the whole trinity, the application being given by the Holy Spirit. But oh, it's, it's a dripping faucet that now is turned to full bore. And the, the intensity of what comes at Pentecost is so that it's not merely for the needs of the disciples, but for the witness they will give, as was never given in the Old Testament, to the ends of the earth. I want to conclude with, conclude with an illustration given by Derek Thomas. And it's about the dam that was built in 1953 in Egypt on the Nile River. The Aswan High Dam, 370 feet high, 11,000 feet apart, uh, across. President Nasser wanted electrical power for Egypt. And so they built this, one of the great wonders of the, of the 20th century, the Aswan High Dam. And like in the Old Testament, when they were building the dam and they were storing up the lake, they were building the water for the, for the lake and the reservoir, they didn't shut it off completely. People had to have water downstream. That was like things in the Old Testament. And the day came when the dam was completed and the engines were ready to go and the water was full and they opened the sluices and it came pouring out. A great volume of water went down the Nile. But what really happened was the lights started going on throughout the land of Egypt. That's what's happening at Pentecost. Yes, there's an outpouring. The degree of magnitude is so much greater. Christ has poured out the Spirit from on high upon his beloved church. But you know what has happened? Power has gone. Through the church, by the gospel, through the word of God, power so that the people living in darkness will be bathed in light the light of the good news that Jesus has come, that God has loved sinners. He sent his son to die for their sin, that they might be forgiven through his blood, that they might be justified in his name, that they may have life. The coming of Pentecost was the erecting of power in and through the church from on high that light would shine throughout the world. Well, my friends, that's our identity. That's our identity is in Christ. But our calling is clear. You're, you are the light of the world, Jesus said. And like that dam when it is opened, he has provided the power. Let the light shine from the word of God, from heaven, through the church, so that sinners are saved. That those living in ignorance and darkness would see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And seeing them, they would be gathered into the harvest until he comes. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study Pentecost and to see the great things you've done and to see what, where we fit into this world. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have loved us and you have come to have communion with us, dwelling in us by your Spirit. We thank you that you have empowered us for the witness you've called us to give. Oh, Father, make us yielding to the life of the Spirit and to the witness he intends that individually and together we would give. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.